going through, and it was provided to us by Capitol Hill Baptist Church up in Washington, D.C., uh, but we adopted it for our own use here at Columbia. governance tonight, in the future, fellowship, uh, leadership, discipline, encouragement, all the way through evangelism. So what do we ask that you bring? We ask that you bring a Bible. If you're uh, watching at home, then we encourage you to have your Bible, a notebook, a pen handy. Uh, handout, unfortunately, we can't electronically send you a handout, but we do have them locally here, so we encourage you when you can to join us here at church. And last but certainly not least, we do ask that you bring enthusiasm. Any shape, size, form, or function of enthusiasm is welcome. So uh, let's, uh, let's forge ahead. So why are we doing this curriculum as part of SOHOP? <clears throat> well, at Cornerstone Church, we believe in biblical covenant membership. And our objective is to obtain a better understanding of what it means to be a local church member as well as a member of the Church of Christ. Uh, as a reminder, um, our identity as the body, our responsibility and our commitment to the church, and more importantly to one another, and most importantly, our commitment to Christ. As way of introduction, I want to begin tonight by asking uh, you all a question about who makes decisions here at Cornerstone Church. If you're a member of Cornerstone, when you attend a members meeting, it can often feel like the elders are the ones who are making all the decisions and leading the church. If that's the case, what is the congregation's role in decision-making? Well, that's what we want to think about today, church governance. So, hard to do at home, but uh, here, in, here in the uh, sanctuary, by a show of hands, how many of you woke up this morning, in the middle of the night even, I was up, this past week fretting about church governance. Anybody? Anybody? Well, I'm glad you're honest at least. The church governance isn't something that most Christians think much about. It's kind of like a piston in the engine in a car, right? We know that the piston's important, but we don't really think a whole lot of about it until it breaks. And then we definitely notice that there's an issue. That's why we want to take an entire uh, so hop class tonight to think about church governance. It's an important part of keeping a church uh, running faithful to the God-given mission over many, many decades. And the more we know how church governance works, the better we can adjust the way we live as church members to promote unity in the congregation. So to start, let's define church governance. Church governance is the system by which decisions are made in a church. It's where authority resides. So think, for example, of the question of what we should put um, maybe in our statement of faith. How do we decide uh, that question, or how we decide that question depends on our system of governance. Church governance can be a great tool for unity or a great opponent for unity in a church. If you think of who holds decision-making authority in a family, it shows just how crucial this concept is. When the kids want to have ice cream for dinner and stay up until 1 a.m., they need to be reminded that, well, mom and dad are actually in charge, not them. Similarly, similarly, we need to know who holds authority in the church. 
Church governance is important in part because God wrote about it in his word. So he's glorified as we follow his instructions. And as we do follow his instructions, proper authority should protect and prosper the unity of the church. With that said, let me lay out a brief outline for our time together this evening. We'll look at the two main leadership offices uh, of the church given in scripture, which are elders and deacons. Then we'll think about the congregation's role in the final decision-making authority. As we consider these issues, we want to focus especially on unity, how organizing the church in accordance with scripture promotes unity, and how we can each live within the organization to maximize the love and the witness of the church. So what are the scriptural offices of the church? Let's look first to the offices of the church in the Bible. They're described simply as elders and deacons. I'm not going to spend a ton of time describing these offices because many of us are familiar with them and would have been introduced to them in our membership class and a few months ago as part of the, uh, the, con- the uh, Constitution Review. But for our purpose this evening, I want us to focus instead on the benefit that these authority structures provide for the unity of the church. So first, elders. So let's start with the elder. The term elder, or in Greek, presbyteros, presbytos, presbyteros, I need to work on my, my pronunciation, my Greek is off, is used intercha- interchangeably with overseer, bishop, and pastor. Elders are charged with the spiritual oversight of the church. So, in Acts uh, 20.28, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. We see in Acts 6 that elders should especially devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They're also charged with being the principal governing body of the church. 1 Timothy 5.17 says the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. It's also, there's references in 1 Peter 5.25. Now, that background, let me suggest four ways that we have, uh, let me suggest four ways that having a biblical eldership promotes and protects the unity of the church. First, the elder model of leadership places authority in those most qualified to exercise it. It entrusts the primary preaching and teaching duties, along with significant decision-making authority, to those who meet certain qualifications as set forth in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, uh, 6 through 9. Just like you probably wouldn't uh, entrust your medical care to someone other than maybe a licensed MD, the church is assured that those who are charged with the most significant responsibilities have met certain biblical criteria that establish their character and their ability to serve. This fosters unity because we recognize a common standard that the elders have to live up to. First Timothy 5.17, as, as I uh, read just a minute ago, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching.
a little slight technical difficulty. I'm going to have to move over to the hard copies because the notes didn't transfer into the file. Give me just a second to get caught up. First Peter 5, 1 through 4 says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and as a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 1 Timothy 3, as we all know, I didn't put all of 1 Timothy 3 on the slides, but it basically gives the full qualifications, the scriptural qualifications for elder. So number two, elder leadership places special responsibility for the spiritual health of the membership in the hands of those who have special accountability to God special accountability to God. So in Hebrews 13:17a, we read that elders keep watch over you as men who must give an account. As the NASB says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account. This means that if we have godly elders, they will lead us as men who fear God first and not man. God holds them responsible to obey Ephesians 4, 12, and 13, which says that the pastor's job is to prepare the church for the works of service so that we can all, all reach unity in faith. A third way that the elders' leadership promotes unity is through God's requirement that members obey their leaders and, quote, submit to their authority. That's from 13a, uh, 1317a. When we submit to authority together, it promotes unity. Now, why is this? Think about this, pos think about this posture of submission. Submission makes us more humble and less headstrong, more deferential and less defiant. Like in a home or in our own relationship with God, a humble recognition of rightful authority brings benefits. So Hebrews 13:17b says, "Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you." Now, lots of people, particularly people in the younger generations, uh, are uncomfortable with the idea of authority pretty much anywhere, not to mention or especially in the church. Authority can be abused. No mistaking it. It can be sinfully misdirected. Definitely. But God invented authority. It is, for our, it is for our good as a church, and it's also for the good of members individually, because learning to trust authority is good for us spiritually. In the church, when elders' authority is used with the consent of the congregation for the good of the congregation, the congregation will benefit as God builds his church. 
As members, we're called to submit. But the other side of that is that the elders are called to exercise their authority rightly. So in 1 Peter 5, Peter, addressing the elders, tells them, be shepherds of God's flock, not lording it over their, sorry, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Elders should be marked by a use of their authority which shows that they understand that the church belongs not to them, but it belongs to Christ. They should be servant-hearted and exhibit, exhibit the same humility that Christ exhibited. Fourth and finally, the biblical model of elder leadership <clears throat> promotes unity by establishing a plurality of elders. Instead of, having, instead of having the leadership of the church rest heavily on one man's shoulders, in Acts 14.23 we read, when they had anointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And many, there are many other verses that uphold this idea of plurality of elderships, of, of plurality of elders. How does having multiple elders foster unity in a church? Well, there's a few ways. For one... Decisions made by the elders collectively rather than by a single leader or strong elder are more likely to have the support of the whole congregation. Think of Proverbs 15.22. Proverbs 15.22. Plans fail for a lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Having this plurality of elders means the elders must have humility as they relate to one another, and the humility should be modeled for the whole church. The other side of this is that a plural, plurality of elders increases, hopefully, the member's confidence in the decision-making process while alleviating a pastor from bearing all of the criticism and all of the responsibility of the church for, for a given decision. So how does this understanding of the uh, elder's office change the way we live as a church? and to live as church members so that we can build unity as the body of, of Christ. Well, there are three ways. First, and this is obvious, we should obey our elders and submit to their leadership. The elders' authority in this regard is tied to the faithful teaching of Scripture. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Now, does that mean that an elder can tell you to purchase a blue car rather than a red car? Maybe if, it, maybe if I'm your dad. I can do that. Only to a point. No. Elders have the authority to lead the congregation by explaining the word of God and applying it in specific circumstances. They provide godly wisdom based on scriptural principles and truths, so members should obey them. In a few weeks, we're going to devote a large part of a class to the question of what do we do when we disagree with an elder's decision. But normally, we are to obey. We are to obey. Second, strategize to make the elders' work a joy and not a burden. We know from Hebrews 13, 17 that this will do, really do us all good, too. So looking for ways to encourage our elders and praying for them is an essential part of church unity. Part of this involves the perception we, we create of the elders in the eyes of others, both inside and outside the church. And particularly newer Christians, the way that we talk about elders in this church or in other churches 
um, to others and the way that we engage with members at, me at members meetings, this really affects the perception of elder leadership. It doesn't mean we never ask questions of the elders or ask them to explain what they mean. It means we do so in a way that assumes the best and helps others get in line with how the elders are leading. Third, consider the qualifications of those brought forward as potential elders. Although we should give the elders' recommendation of a prospective new elder great weight, we should also make the effort to get to know the prospective elder. If you don't know a prospective elder at all, seek the opportunity between the nomination point and the congregational voting on him, which that varies, and, and we recognize that it varies, but let's just say typically six weeks, is plenty of time to meet with, talk with, get to know the elder, his family, the potential elder and his family. In fact, our church constitution says that we're to speak with the nominee and or existing elders ahead of time about any concerns over a nominee's biblical qualifications. The reason for that is simple. If there's some concern you have about an individual's, individual's ability to lead this congregation that's significant enough that you would withhold a vote of affirmation, it might be a good reason for the elders to withdraw that person's nomination. In all of this, remember that elders serve as under-shepherds of the great shepherd. They won't be perfect. We aren't. We try to recognize it every day. When we do lead as Jesus led, we need encouragement. We should follow the elders as they follow Christ. Any questions so far? No. <laughs> Absolutely.
and we also don't answer to another higher authority out that, that governs the operation of this church as some other uh, denominations do. You know, we're autonomous within the groups that we affiliate ourselves with as a body. Um, but there's nothing that they tell us you have to do X, Y, or Z. No. And we are completely autonomous as a congregation. So, any other questions or comments? All right, deacons. The second type of office that is clearly set out in Scripture is the office of deacon. In the New Testament, the word diakonos can be translated deacon or servant. Um, it refers to service in general. Deacons attend to the practical details of church life, such as admin, administration, maintenance, and the care of uh, church members with physical needs. The qualifications for deacon are set forth in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 12, and are very similar to those of, of elders. There is, however, one very clear difference, that unlike elders, deacons are not required to be able to teach. So how does a proper biblical understanding of the relationship between deacons and elders foster unity within the church? In Acts 6, we see something of the root of the, dis of the distinction in the roles and the responsibilities of the deacons and the elders. Acts 6, verse 1, we read that the Grecian Jews were complaining against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so upon recommendation of the apostles, the church appointed deacons to make food distribution among the widows more equitable. In this, we see three ways that deacons contribute to the unity of the church. First, deacons care for all the members of the church. Their work among the widows in Acts 6 was important because the physical neglect of the Grecian, widow, Grecian widows was causing spiritual disunity. One group of Christians was beginning to complain against the other group in a particularly dangerous way along cultural lines. This seems to be what in particular caught the attention of the apostles. In, a, in attending to all the widows, the deacons diffused the situation and preserved the unity of the body. Second, the deacons and acts allowed the apostles to, to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. In verses 2 through 4 of Acts 6, we read, and what's on the screen is the uh, NASB, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Today, in the modern church, deacons can play the same role in support of the ministry of the elders. Elders are able to spend needed time in prayer at their meetings precisely because the deacons are coordinating some or much of the church's ministry. This is a living picture of unity. The deacons humbling pursuing, humbly pursuing their service while the elders teach and lead and each embracing their God-given talents and God-given roles within the church. Finally, the third way that deacons cultivate unity is by distributing work throughout the congregation. Deacons, well, they're servants at heart. They're gifted to serve the church body in a, way, uh, in a variety of ways that are tangible and helpful. They can coordinate volunteers for particular needed ministries, maybe providing rides or setting up refreshments on Sunday mornings or 
helping church members with physical needs, um, and helping to guide some church programs. They prevent a disproportionate amount of work from falling on just a few members, and it enables all members to have the opportunity to participate in the joy of serving one another. Well, what are some of the implications of deacons' work for the rest of us? There's a couple of thoughts. First, this understanding of deacons should inform our decision um, in the selection of deacons. If deacons are the ones to foster unity, then those who serve in this capacity should be uniters, not dividers. They shouldn't be concerned about protecting their own turf, and they should not be the kind of folks who are kind of uh, out lobbying for a particular big idea. They're not like the second house of the legislature, where you have the Senate and the House, that is there to compete with the elders. Instead, they come on behalf of the whole. Let me say that again. They come on on behalf of the whole to serve particular needs, absolutely, but with a sense of of, uh, contribution, a desire to contribute to the whole body. Second, we should, as members, support the deacons by volunteering in their various ministries. By doing so, we promote unity in the church by encouraging encouraging the deacons, serving the body, and helping in distributing the work evenly. As I mentioned earlier, we'll be talking a little more about this. I think it's in week 11 um, on points of service. Well, so far, we've considered what church offices are set forth in Scripture, deacons and elders. But what about the form of government? Who should have the final say on matters in the church? When we read through Scripture, we see that, we see that it's the congregation that has ultimately the final authority in three particularly significant matters of church life. Discipline, membership, and, believe it or not, doctrine. Thus, the weight of Scripture supports a congregational form of government, and by that, I, I, I really simply mean that the congregation is somewhat of maybe a final court of appeals in those three areas, okay? And we'll, we'll dive into this a little further. So first, we know from Matthew 18, in verses 15 through 17, that the congregation has the final say on matters of discipline. If one member has sinned against another and refuses to listen even after being confronted by other members, Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, 17, tell it to the church. So let's read the scripture uh, as written. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins, go and show him his faults in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. (coughs) Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 5, we see that it's only the congregation that has the authority to discipline a member. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
Also in 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, Paul urges the whole church to readmit someone who has previously been expelled from the church, um, in this case the church of Corinth, and who apparently had repented. So we see in this example that the congregation as well kind of has final authority in the matters of membership. So 2 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which is inflicted by the majority, the membership. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such as one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Welcome, back, welcome him back into the flock. Finally, this is the case um, with regard to the matters of doctrine. That sounds kind of odd that the, that the congregation has the final authority on doctrine, but hear what, listen to what Scripture says. In Galatians 1.8, Paul says to the Christians in the church, not just the pastors, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As NASB says, I'm going to read it verbatim, but even as we or as an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And many other times in the New Testament, it's the church that is blamed for bad teaching, not the leaders. It is the church membership that seeks ear-tickling teachers. As you see in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Who's they? The church. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So you see, the church ultimately is accountable for doctrinal matters. What I wanted to show is, from a congregationalism standpoint, what our Constitution and bylaws says. Now, I don't know how legible that is from there, but... Um, you see the three principles we just talked about kind of outlined in our Constitution in items one through four. The congregation is, is directed to be involved in the governance of the church. Um, I, won't, uh, I won't bore you guys by reading through all the particular details, and if you have your Constitution that we distributed back, I think, in 2019, um, you can read through it, but it, it follows that model of the three principles we just talked about. So the question for us is this. Does this congregational authority help our unity as a congregation or hurt it? I think the answer is yes. For one, this authority gives us, as members, a great amount of stewardship in the local church. There's a responsibility, a sense that we have to answer to Christ for how we, as members, fulfill our role. <clears throat> if the health of the church is ultimately up to the leaders, we can just kind of sit back and relax. But if it's up to us, the membership, we should take an interest in the health of the body, which, therefore, should lead us to care about one another, lead us to love one another, and ultimately to do all that we can do to pursue the unity of the body. This authority also fosters unity by enabling the congregation to protect the purity of the gospel, which is the very thing that should unite us as Christians. 
You see, the congregation serves as the fence to protect the church against false teaching or to discipline a member who is unrepentant in their sin. Think, if you will, of maybe a weightlifting spotter. The spotter that stands above someone who's about to be bench-pressing an extremely heavy weight. If the weightlifter's in danger, the spotter is there to exert his authority, interrupt the exercise, and take over, protecting the weightlifter. Just like the spotter, the congregation is the one called to safeguard the gospel and make sure it's preserved. And this arrangement makes sense. Histor history tells us, or has taught us, that it's more likely for a few church leaders to go astray than a whole congregation of regenerate believers who know the gospel and are filled with the Holy Spirit. That does not abdicate the elders' responsibility to teach sound doctrine. However, it does put responsibility and authority in the congregation to hold the elders accountable, and also the congregation has responsibility to learn and know the word of God where there's conflict if, the elder, if the, uh, we as elders are teaching something contrary to scripture. So that leaves one final topic this evening. How do we balance elder leadership and congregationalism? We've seen that scripture teaches the idea of elder leadership in the church. And in fact, Hebrew 13 states that members should obey their leaders and submit to their authority. It certainly does. And yet, we also see that Scripture gives the congregation um, say on certain matters of significance. This tension raises two further questions for consideration. First, what about other matters that arrive in the arise in the life of the church besides discipline, doctrine, membership, and personal disputes? So, for example, issues like, should we make renovations to part of a building, like we did, um, provide funding for overseas missionaries? Should the, should the congregation have final say on these sorts of things? The New Testament actually doesn't answer that specific question. Scripture doesn't say, pick blue carpet or green carpet. It's a, it's a function of of um, importance let's put it that way so how much further the congregation decides to involve itself corporately in matters like staff budgets missions uh, is a matter left to discretion and to prudence and we cover that in our constitution and bylaws we have a section on um, congregational involvement in areas of prudence and I encourage you to go back and read that the Constitution itself, for example, requires congregational involvement to approve the annual budget, to affirm elders, to nominate and elect deacons, modify the Constitution, as well as building and capital, exp capital expenditures. The second question is how we can be obedient to the biblical command to obey and submit, and at the same time exercise our membership responsibility of guarding the purity of the gospel. Um, serving as the spotter, if you will, in that uh, role. Well, one helpful way to think about it is to consider how serious the matter is and whether the matter is clear or not. So, for example, let's say that the issue is whether the Bible is the inspired word of God or just parts of the Bible are inspired. That would be a serious and clear issue, I would say, right? 
the Bible is, in its entirety, inspired. Period. This is the kind of clear doctrinal issue that if the elders teach something false, the congregation should not defer to them. This is where the congregation has a duty to step in as the spotter to preserve the integrity of the gospel message. Hold us accountable. What if, on the other hand, the issue is whether the congregation should approve the elders' recommendation that a prospective member be admitted? Well, this is also a serious issue, but in most cases, it won't be as clear to the congregation because all of us may not be able to get to know that person's testimony closely. This is the kind of area for which it's most important for the congregation to have trust in the elders. In many ways, it's these kinds of issues where the elders most particularly serve the church by doing the specific work of interviewing, considering um, potential members. Because membership does not require congressional approval, congressional, congregational approval. Um, that was politic often here. Congregational approval. We should make an informed decision, as informed a decision as possible. And if we have good reason to doubt the elders', elders recommendation, let us know. But generally, this is an area where congregation should default to the trust of the elders. If you know something, say something. If you see something, say something, right? So how can we, as members, contribute to unity by participating in this decision-making process of the church? I think there's two ways. First, we should take seriously the responsibility that we have as members to guard against false teaching and error uh, and erroneous teaching of the church. Think about how the Bereans are described in Acts 17.11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see uh, to see if these things were so. If you, believe that these, th if you believe that there is doctrinal error taught from the pulpit, then you're responsible to learn more about that. Go talk to an elder uh, in person to find out what the pastor or the elder believes on that point. If the elders ever stray from the statement of faith, from scripture, the congregation must step in. I'll use my laser pointer on that. If the elders ever stray from Scripture, the congregation must step in. Second, we should take seriously our membership privileges and responsibilities, including our voting privilege. So we should attend church members' meetings, which generally we, we do. We have a very high attendance for member meet, members' meetings. And we should participate in the various votes that come up. This is another way that we can promote unity in the body. By voting along with the rest of the congregation on important matters, such as budget or um, deacon elections or um, whatever the case may be, we're showing our agreement with one another, assuming that we agree with the elders and the rest of the church on these actions. So in conclusion, as we, as we reflect on our authority as a church, let's not forget that we only have this authority because Christ laid down his authority for us. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It is his example of humility that we follow as we govern this church, his church, for God's glory and our joy. Any questions? Thoughts, comments, concerns?
Anybody awake? 